This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's time now for Sensing Bros, a program about whānau, well-being and personal growth. This program is about natural buzz. There's a group of us brothers who are living alcohol and drug free and we want to share our stories and celebrate the things that are going right in the world. There's a lot of negativity. We're about positivity. We come from diverse cultural backgrounds, Samoan, Tongan, Māori, and we just want to share the love. I always find this bit the hardest, but huge welcome if you're listening out there. <laughs> Seems funny to say it, but um, you're on Sensing Bros, and I'm here with my daughter to talk about some things that have been um, going on in, in our community, and also for those who, who are following or listening have been you'll remember that we've done a, a, about four kind of conversations. Four? About, yeah. Oh, that's more than I remember. Hello, <laughs> I'm the daughter. <laughs> yeah. Right. Talia, Talia? Yes. Yes. Welcome. Thank you, thank you. Um, where to begin, eh? Yeah, Because... Well, mm-hmm. mm. Because we've been watching and um, and listening and learning and growing and thinking about our faith mm. quite a bit, and having moved out of a, uh, quite a um, conservative evangelical faith community. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I guess I've moved. I've moved into another conservative. <laughs> <laughs> Methodist community, but um, as I was saying, what what is important to me in finding a faith community because I do still find that there's value in that mm. for me, and I really value and want to be a part of a faith community that centres around Christ and His teachings. Because I've always been keen on that <laughs> even before we started going to this this big evangelical church um, I think Christ was really a central figure for me but what I look for now is not so much the doctrine of the church or the theology of the church or do they teach the right things because I think a community is more about seeking together uh, rather than coalescing around a certain set of rules which is what a lot of churches are but there are some gems out there that have their articles of faith have their sort of stands but um, because of the quality of the leadership they're really open um, to diverse seekers and so the the community that I'm in now um, even though it's on the face of it it's quite conservative the leadership that's in place, the servant leaders there, they call them servant leaders, are really, if to borrow some terminology from Brene Brown, yeah. we're, we're big fans of Brene Brown, they're not armoured leadership. 
which means they don't drive a fitting in culture they drive a belonging culture wow and so even it's good That's yeah so yeah. you can belong to the community even if you don't agree agree mm. yeah i guess there is this, an extra step that you can take mm. of partnership to the community which i'm not going to take because that does require a, like you you know signing up to certain articles of the faith it's you know it's quite an old denomination they've still got their little hierarchies and bureaucracies but for this stage in my spiritual journey um it's an important place to be just to belong and to sit and to soak and seek didn't mean for that to <laughs> i didn't that was not intentional alliteration but mm. it sounded good <laughs> yes it did i thought yeah it did sound good so you were saying earlier that you know you can disagree with the articles of faith mm. like many of them mm. and agree with some of them um and though those leaders mm. Um, you do not have a problem with that no because I don't think that they're fear driven they're not threatened they're not threatened by difference Um, but many many Christian leaders and just leaders in general Mm. uh, but I guess in this context we're talking specifically about our experience in faith communities Mm. um, are fear driven Mm. and um, armoured as opposed to daring and you know tolerant of differences tolerant of risk tolerant of thinking outside the box yeah we uh, I've just got back from you know that Auckland trip mm-hmm. with uh, Matt and Sarah Brown in a barber's community it was a wananga and it was beautiful and we did a few sessions um, talking about vulnerability mm. and just Brene Brown's big thing mm, <laughs> it is and and armour <clears throat> and so um, taking off the armour and, and really being uh, giving people the opportunity to yeah. do that it's very meaningful it's really it was really moving yeah uh, um, I was going to um, talk about that two days but I won't because I want to focus on this and uh, um, the sense that people who are struggling or searching or are really uncomfortable in their religious journey Mm. the um, the really really sad thing is that churches should be spaces where people can be vulnerable but so many of them are places where people have to be armoured because they have to conform and accord with the group which means they have to perform and mm. yeah, once you've got a performance culture, once mm. you've got a, f- I've got to fit in here. Um, yeah, you become very armoured and mm. very defensive about your reputation, and you can't be. Um, yeah, there's not space to really seek, and so a lot of people, their experiences with the church, have made them also armoured when they do go into those spaces. Mm into and you know religiosity or anything like that gets them really triggered because they've had they've learned that okay i have to armor up in order to not be judged in this place not be literally demonized because this is what the community that we came out of would do to people who who um 
didn't quite fit <laughs> or had some questions. Everything was was a demon. Um, yeah. Do you feel less um, hurt by the f- lack of care shown about what about you mm. as a person? Like you're 24, mm. and your friend group, a lot of your friend group were there, but you have you had a friend group through university that weren't there that were quite mm. diverse. Eh? Yeah. Um, who showed you the greater love? <laughs> <laughs> I know you've got some close friends. Um, well, do you know what's funny? Yeah. So I've, I study law. I'm doing a Master's of International Law. Um, and so during my law degree, my undergrad mm. law degree, I interned at a corporate law firm. Mm. And while I was interning at that corporate law firm, I was also... Um, when did you do that? No. <laughs> yeah. Um, did you find the first time I, I interned yeah, with them I twice. Yeah. The first time I interned with them, I was still at the church and still serving heavily at the church um, in a volunteer role. Mm. And then the second time I interned, I'd left. <laughs> but the first time, I even remember thinking it back then that there was more care shown to me, more mental health check-ins, more interest in me as a person shown by the people at a corporate law firm, the partners in the HR team, than in my entire then seven to eight years at this church. There's a lot of... I saw that too with the way that volunteers were encouraged to continue volunteering. Yeah. It was sort Um, of like, don't expect your reward here from us, it's in heaven. But that's quite... That's just a way of getting away from the fact that you actually need to show appreciation to people um, and that if you're given them a high task, like you always say... If you're high challenge, high support. High challenge, high support, whereas yeah. that was just high challenge, yeah, very, very low support. And be, and be grateful that you're being given a yeah, high challenge. Yeah, and be grateful for the high challenge. And if you can't hack it, then and you're just offended. <laughs> then you're just offended at God because he's asking you to do stuff. Right. But and it's not God asking them to do stuff. It's the organisation. Saying you're... Your gift will be rewarded in heaven. Yeah. Well, and and this is the thing about gifting. Yeah. Is that everything that you did outside of this community was expected to serve the community in some way. So it's not that this was a place where you sought God together and then you also had your vocation. It was um, a total institution. It took over every aspect of your life. And so I had... The o- um, I had a, one of the leaders who knew I was doing a law degree tell me, you know, she wasn't interested in what I wanted to do with this law degree. She want, wasn't interested in my career aspirations. None of the leaders were. They never asked. Mm. They never once asked me what I wanted to do with my career. Mm. Um, but they told she told me that I could be the lawyer for the church. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's like like I was spending this this five to six years at uni getting these skills and this degree so that I could come back and help them with their property law. <laughs> it, it had value as long as it served their purpose Yeah. without it really... Um, well, that was very caring, wasn't it? Yeah, well... It's very Christ-like. Yeah, to go back to your early question about did I feel more hurt, I think even while I was at in this community... Um, 
I realized that well, I remember very clearly having a thought a couple of weeks before I made the decision to actually leave. And I thought, what leaders here, you know, these people that um, are demanding that I volunteer more and more of my time, how many of them actually know what my aspirations in life are? Like, how many of them know what I'm studying? Mm-hmm. And how many of them know what I want to do with what I'm studying? And how many of them want to help? You know what I mean? Mm. And it was none. I couldn't point to anybody beyond my four closest friends in the church, two of whom have now left for the same reasons, <laughs> and two of whom one another one is on the verge of leaving and, and one's still quite involved. But aside from those four friendships, I, there was no one else in that community that... Um, that showed care for me as a person as opposed to just a cog in the wheel of the church. And that's that's what's really sad about these faith communities. Um, yeah, that turn into organisations and turn into clubs, really. And like we were, we were talking about earlier, um, much of our human religion, this isn't limited just to evangelical Christianity, though that's like our experience, but so much of human religion has become this elaborate system of defining who's in and who's out. And that is really antithetical to the way of Jesus. Um, and that's really the opposite of why I was drawn to Jesus in the first place. So in leaving this community <laughs> that was so us versus them... Um, I was actually trying to find the Jesus that was more inclusive and the Jesus that was, yeah, sorry, our cat was meowing, <laughs> so I just let her in. So, Hi, Cleo. <laughs> I don't know, the recording might have picked that up. Anyway, yeah. No, I get you, because that was my thing too around, really, what what is Christ like if the church is followers of Christ so mm. I kind of got right back to to that <laughs> focus and um, the quality of the relationships that I had mm. so it was very similar for me e- even as an adult I was experiencing it quite similarly yeah yeah um. The thing that happened recently, though, around this is why I wanted to kind of stir it up again for me was mm. um, this. Oh, the racism! Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh! I was just, I was just oh, it was so bad. T- yeah. So shall I? Shall I lay out the the context? Yeah, lay hey. out the context. I think it's important to. And then we'll discuss it. it. Um, yeah. She keeps jumping up. So what happened was I heard about this from a friend who still works at the church, Mm. um, but doesn't go to the church. Mm. So (laughs) she's in a very interesting space. No names, no names. No names, no, no. Um, And she actually heard about it from somebody else at the church 
that the lead pastor had said during one of his sermons um, that we had replaced Tepreo with Tereo. And mm. so I thought that's unbelievable. I mean, and so I went and... Um, to Preo. To Preo with Tereo. And so I went to watch this sermon and I found the place where he said it. And he actually prefaced his little rhyme by saying that it was a rhyme that God had given him directly. Um, mm. And I think, well, that's I, that's clearly delusional because if God can part the Red Sea, he can pronounce a Māori vowel correctly. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> does God talk like he was born in Gore? <laughs> right. Did you say gore? Gore? Toreo? Oh my gosh. It's Tereo Māori. Just FYI for anyone out there. Oh. Um, but the context and what she was saying it, he what was, was it? Okay, so he was, he said that rhyme. God's given me this rhyme that's prophetic. He said the rhyme, which was actually very racist. And then he went on a rant about how... Um, Jesus, Jesus's kingdom is how none of our cultures, none of our human cultures are going to be in the kingdom of God. So the kingdom that Jesus came to set up actually Mm. erases all human culture because they're all corrupt and they're all irredeemable. And so he says, I challenge any of you to tell me anything from any of our cultures that is going to make it into the kingdom of God. And what's... Did he really he said say, that, that yeah. challenge? He, oh. he looked directly into the camera and said, I challenge any of you out there. Um, so, challenge accepted. <laughs> yeah. Might, um, we might do a little bit of a series on that. Yeah. Well, I think... What, what is the kingdom of God to him? Well, this is the thing. Like, Jesus does say that there is going to be one shepherd and one flock, right? But that flock, within that flock, there is so much diversity. Because Jesus Jesus doesn't erase our distinctions. He doesn't erase our language. He doesn't erase our ethnicities. He doesn't erase our unique cultures. He doesn't erase our cultural and our spiritual practices. So he doesn't erase the distinction between people. Mm. But he promises to erase the hostilities between people. And I think that's, that's the Christian hope. Is that there is... It could be. That's good. It could all be so much more beautiful than this. Mm. And Jesus says, "Yes, and it will be." And it's the Spirit of Christ that will, yeah, that will be poured out upon people. So it's the it enhances the distinctions. Mm. And but erases the hostilities. The, the, yeah. That they cause. Yeah. Um, and that's the way of Jesus, because when Jesus came, he came not to give us a new doctrine, a new set of rules to follow, a new set of rules in which we have to modify our behavior in order to get into the club that's going to heaven. That wasn't the point. The point was that he laid out a new way of being human. Mm. Um, and that new way of being human is looks different culturally, you know, to, you know, like Christianity is adopted into so many different cultures and it looks different. You know, there's a different way. A lot of Christianity is tied in with colonization and with white European culture, which is 
a problem but um but it, it you know people should remember that it didn't begin it didn't begin with the enlightenment it didn't begin with saint augustine it began with christ who was a jewish man from the middle east mm. so there's a message that in christianity that is transcultural that is universal um yeah the indigenous lens and voice say eh, is mm. really interesting because I'm not a cultural relativist. Yeah. You know, I believe there are some some sort of absolutes. Yeah. Well, and, and this is the thing. It's not that there aren't dark parts of each culture. Yeah. So each culture has things that need to shift. Yeah. Right, and it's different. So was the challenge that was being put out was that somehow the only culture that was going to be in the kingdom of heaven was the one that was most like that church yeah and so th- this is so the features of that church then are yeah what, what <laughs> <laughs> then if you say that is um, there's no disagreeing with the leadership no it's armoured leadership it's armoured leadership it's a fitting in culture yeah fitting in culture built on threat mm, threat of the fires of hell if you don't yeah yeah yeah. And that's sort of where they get their... So that's the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. And what's interesting is that this preacher, how he gets out of, you know, even though he's saying very, very evidently racist things, the way he tries to absolve himself of that is say that, um, well, that, you know, there are, he's not for Pākehā culture either. <laughs> that Pākehā culture is also corrupt and also needs to be done away with. Right. Kingdom right. So we're all equally terrible. Mm. Yes. So it's very anti-human, anti-human race. But it is actually racist because how that plays out in practice is that people have to come to that church, leave their culture at the door, and adopt the practices and the rituals of the church, which is the kingdom culture. But where that church comes from is the charismatic movements of the 70s and then the Jesus sort of revival movements of the 90s which actually birthed this church. The signs and wonders which is actually very much focus. Yeah which is and where they draw their inspiration for how they set up their services um, is very much from white evangelical spaces. White evangelical churches in America and Australia Mm -hmm. so they're saying leave your culture at the door and adopt a white evangelical culture so it is actually racist. <laughs> but it's so insidious because he can't see the water that he's swimming in. Mm. He can't see that what he's giving people is actually just another culture. Mm. Um, and the problem is that while he does acknowledge that there is... It's true you, that there is corruption mm. and darkness in many cultures. Mm. You know, there are certain practices that needed to be changed. Um, it's also true that there's beauty. And I think that we should be looking for the beauty in every culture and the beauty in every individual as well. I mean, that's the Christ-like way, is to love the world, not to hate it <laughs> and kill everyone, yes. which is yes. sort of where he's going. It's very extreme. Do you think that's been... My feeling is that's been amplified because of COVID mm. and um, and some of the eschatology, the thinking about the end. 
things are ending. We've been in the end times for 2,000 years. Yeah. I mean, people thought we were in the end times with the bubonic plague. People thought we were in the end times in World War Two. People thought we were at the end times in the sacking of Rome. People thought the end times were when the Library of Alexandria burned down. I mean, there are major shifts and events that have happened throughout history that have changed the course of human history. Mm. But they weren't the end. And I think that you can look at this... It's very human to look at what's going on now and to sense that some transition is happening and to get very um, eschatological about it all. And that also happens on the left with some radical groups like Extinction Rebellion, you know, who really believe that the world is going to end in 12 years if they don't do something, which is a massive burden to live with. Mm, I was listening to the guy who was the founder of that the other day. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I don't want to mischaracterise their views, but that's what I understand mm. from from talking to people as part of the group. Um, For me, it's the anxiety-creating end time is mm. scatological sort of stuff that bor- that doesn't worry me, but it concerns me because I've got friends who are really worried about friends. Yeah. Uh, not only does it push towards a kind of a, a, an apolitical survival mm. mentality, like it's all coming down and we better get prepared to, yeah. you know, for the worst. It, it stops people believing that there are still options and choices. Yeah. We might be on the precipice. <laughs> yeah. But that's not a, that doesn't mean that we can't, in the big scheme of things, be re- Rethinking mm. and reframing and resetting. Well, it doesn't take a prophet to see, to look out at the world and see that there's a lot of fear and uncertainty and division. But a good leader does not capitalize on that to create further division. Oh, that's really cool. That's really cool. And I've seen good leadership even in the public sector. Mm. Um, mm, me so too. So, like. Me too. In, in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade, mm. there's a trade negotiations division, mm. and that's headed by a man called Dr. Vangelis Vitalis. Is he a doctor? I think so. I think he's got a PhD. Don't know. Don't know. I remember you mentioning him to Yeah, me. well, I've seen him speak a couple of times, and I mean, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade can be criticised on a lot of different grounds with how they've conducted their international trade um, for New Zealand, but at the moment in the wider economy... It's, I mean, there's a lot that we cannot take for granted anymore. There's something called the International Rules-Based Order, which New Zealand relied upon um, as a smaller economy, kind of trying to navigate the waters with these massive big economies that Mm. could just squash us. So we relied on rules. Um, And that has been seriously thrown into doubt by things like um, Trump... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Trump and um, you know China's who <laughs> theory yeah remember that, day? <laughs> remember that oh, day? I, I blocked it out yeah um, where's he gone and no. China's very ambitious expansionist um, policies mm. but the way Vangelis has approached it which I think is actually de- is demonstrable of good leadership in times of uncertainty good is to point out the opportunities that exist for small states like New Zealand, and to mm. actually act on those. Mm. So he's got this idea of concerted open plurilateralism, which is a, just a fancy way of saying a whole bunch of smaller economies that are also reliant on the rules-based order get together and create agreements 
mm. and we set the standard and then mm. we you know invite larger economic powers to come and join us so it's a, it's looking for the opportunities in the uncertainty mm. and driving a message of well here is what we can do and here's what is possible would it be correct to sort of see that as an emphasis on re- regional localism we're just making that um, up <laughs> regionalism I think not so much the big globalisms yeah uh, more the partly okay. I mean New Zealand does have a is turning more to focus on our closer neighbours so the South Pacific and Southeast Asia um, but concerted open plurilateralism is about it's not necessarily just about um, nations in your region it's sort of about connecting with nations that are like minded you know and want to kind of coalesce around similar values so New Zealand's like really big on human rights and things like that Mm. regardless of how well we implement that at home you don't have to answer this but just as an outsider looking in and observing Mm. Is this why we get on so well with Australia? (laughs) 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 Yeah. Um, Yeah. Hello to my Australian people. Yeah, gosh, Australia. But, uh, sorry, I was just thinking about that. Well, Australia is a bit... They're more of a medium power. We're quite a small power. So they can come out swinging a bit more than we can. We are constrained by our lack of what's what's called an... um, political science hard power so hard power would be like hard economic power hard military power New Zealand has nothing we have soft power we have hey we're nice and hey we're we're (laughs) consistent (laughs) and we consistently advocate for the same values and principles and have since the end of World War 2 and you can trust us and that's how we've won things like our seat on the United Nations Security Council Mm. and um, we played a massive part in the establishment of the World Trade Organization and Mm. um, we've got We've got people in high places, you know, mm. like Helen Clark and what, what she's a, doing. I mean, it's the wrong phrase, but it was often when we went to the UN to do that drug stuff years yeah. ago. Right? It, there was a real sense that we were punching above our weight. Yeah, well, that's the phrase that's used a lot. Um, one of my political science professors, Anne Marie Brady, prefers the phrase "small can be huge." Oh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah, I was trying to take out the kind of the punch. Yeah, she doesn't. Yeah, yeah she says. Yeah. Even though we're small, yeah, our influence can be huge, and 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 so that's coming back to the leadership. And that, that's about, yeah, seeing the opportunities and the uncertainty, not capitalizing on the uncertainty. And I think that's why people contrasted Jacinda's leadership with Trump's leadership because she did that, whereas Trump capitalized on the division, and he got elected on. Um, and appealing to the fears of his demographic, which mm. is, you know, immigrants are going to come and take your jobs. The liberal elites are running the show and they're all pedophiles. You know, the things this, like the, cra- the, the know, fears and the uncertainty. And this is what leaders in smaller, like in our community, are doing the same yeah. thing. I'm going to drain the swamp. Yeah, it's that, yeah. that attitude of... Which is, I know. But liberals do it too, you know. They they can be very alarmist about um, the rise of populism, and that they don't see that there's scared people there. Um, which is why Valerie Cower, I think, is a or Core, 
Valerie Cork. I, I still don't know. I'm trying to find someone who actually introduces her and says her last name so I can hear how to <laughs> so pronounce it. I can see how pronou- I think it's Kaur. K-A-U-A? Because it's the same as Rupi Kaur. Is it? And I've heard Rupi Kaur said like that. It's K-A-U-R anyway. Yeah, yeah. I want to get it right too. Kaur. Mm. So it's See Kaur. No Stranger. Yes. Mm. And she talks about, um, yeah, trying to see the whole story of the person in front of you. Mm. And not give in to the us versus them narrative. Mm. I liked what you said. It's her quote, though, isn't it? That um, we're at a time of seeing it as a kind of a, a midwifey, midwife birthing um, moment mm. in humanity. And it's not the darkness, even though there is a lot of darkness, it's not the darkness of the tomb, mm. but of the womb. Is that mm. what you said? Yeah, that's her quote. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think... I've been thinking, pondering that one, because it's quite... And that's, again, that's another Real. way of um, seeing, that's another way of responding to what's going on, mm. is to see this as a transition, mm. and that there are changes that need to happen, and that there are things that are going to die off. Mm. Have you come across this guy, Keith Giles? No. Okay. I was just listening <laughs> to him the other day, and... Um, you know, he was a full-on pastor, scholar. Mm. He's written a few books. I haven't read any of them. But he was talking to a guy also who um, had converted to atheism. And he was a, a scholar. Yeah. And he, they were both... I was impressed with their dialogue because one of them held on to a faith in Christ, but really it had nothing to do with... Um, maintaining a program of mm. ev- evangelism yeah so to get to that place for him mm. it was a really thoughtful process and um, but he talked he talked about the thing that he holds on to is that his value and what he how he sees Christ what his life was about what um but he's he was very open minded. Mm. Yeah. And the atheist was very open minded and has done his homework and he's writing a book about about our you know, the Christianity's evidential claims about Jesus. Mm. Uh, well I think So but none of them Yeah <laughs> but that it was a really open, honest discussion. Yeah. From two people who were thoughtful about why they believed at this particular point in their lives, what mm. they believed. I think that for me, like I'm very, I live so much in my rational mind in that those evidentiary claims at one point really mattered to me. Yeah, look, whereas, the, the season of apologetics. Hey? Yeah, whereas it doesn't matter to me so much anymore because no. I think it doesn't matter where you land. There's an element of mystery that yeah. you need to, there's always been a part of the Christian tradition actually. Mm. Um, like a really key part when people start to lose you know Apostle Paul used the word mysterion so often in his epistles so there's always been this element of mystery and either way whether you accept the divinity of Christ or whatever language you want to put on it it takes an act of faith or um, I've heard it put another way it takes a courageous assumption (laughs) you sort of just have to assume something 
And the basis on which you make that courageous assumption, that leap of faith, um, for me it comes down to, well, what presents the more beautiful vision for the world? Mm. And what is the most, what is the better way of being human? Mm. And I think Jesus, hands down, presents a beautiful vision for the world and for people Mm. and lays out a beautiful way of being human that is worth following, that can give meaning to life, to not just to its good parts, but to its suffering as well. And so I think that's why I've chosen to follow him. It's not been, Mm. and also um, a direct experience of him as well. I think you can't think your way to knowing Christ, it, it, there is an element, a mysterious element of mystical union with Christ that you get through prayer <laughs> and worship. Contemplation. And contemplation mm. and, 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 yeah. Um, Brad Juzak's book, I highly recommend. You've read it, eh? The, I've more, read parts of it. A more Christ-like way. Yeah. Well, yeah, the Christ-like way, it's, uh, it's way appealing. Of, yeah. When it's understood well and when it's not used as it so often is used which is really really sad it makes me incredibly frustrated it's it's used so often to divide and to say well some of you are acceptable by christ and in his club and some of you aren't and he's going to come back and wipe you off the face of the planet do you think a lot of the sort of denominational men's lisms yeah yeah (laughs) comes a feels a lot like children playing God's favourite. Yeah. Well, because everyone wants to be favorite? in the club mm. and they, they don't want other people to be in the club. Mm. But that's not the way Christ operated. I mean, he was always challenging the disciples and their assumptions because he knew where he came from. He came from a Jewish community in a very divided world. mm, mm where they looked down on Samaritans, where they looked down on Romans, mm. you know. And um, and when even within his community there were there were factions, you know, there was like mm. the Sadducees and then there was the Pharisees and then there were the Nazarenes, which were their own radical faction. Mm. Um, and he angered all of them by accepting all of them, <laughs> you know, and sort of being willing to dine with all of them. Mm. And... It's- true the yes. the story i always come back to the story of the good samaritan mm. which is what's key about that is not jesus saying here's someone who did a good deed aren't they nice but the key is that actually he's saying this person that you think can never be acceptable to god because they don't believe what you do and they they don't have the same narratives that you do the way that he acts in the world is it is pleasing to god because he's showing mercy and care and that's what's important, not what mountain you sacrifice on, not what um, lineage you come from and who's in your genealogy, whether or not you came from, you know, Abraham or or Isaac or the other one, Ishmael. And so I think that that's the key takeaway from the Good Samaritan that's so often missed. <laughs> it's like Jesus was saying, even the person that you think could never be acceptable God is because what's important is your way of being, not necessarily having the right narrative and the right doctrines. So, are you saying um, that the? Are you? Do you mean in terms of the Samaritan? He's really highlighting 
the Samaritan's virtue. Yeah, yeah. But he and, chose and Samaritan the, because Samaritans were so looked down upon. Mm, they are seen as lower than dogs. Mm. So the person who got beaten up on the road sees the people he would have expected to help him, ignore him and yeah. race past him and not... Because they're too busy going about God's work. Mm. And, the, and his perspective is, this guy's coming to help me. Mm. And he, kind of similar to black man converting a Ku Klux Klan man, <laughs> which yeah, has what? happened, that there is a man, and I've just forgotten his name, who goes and, and tries to build relationships the, with people who, yeah. He was prepared to have the conversations with these guys, and apparently there's about 200, it might be more now, who mm. have handed in their cloaks. Wow. That's awesome. I mean, it's radical. It would be like, it would be like someone trying to convince um, a group full of very, very right-wing Trump supporters, you know, anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim people, that Jesus was actually pleased with um, a, a devout Muslim because of the way that he lived and that he would come into the kingdom of God. You know, and that would be so scandalous to people because they'd say, no, he's not in our club. He doesn't believe what we believe. He doesn't have the right narratives. Whereas Christ is emphasizing mercy. And I think... Yeah, we have different narratives, but we should be able to coalesce around universal values. And that's where the real, the key change needs to happen. In your observation then, in your experience, do you see many of your generation, you know, doing that? Um, I think that there's... There's... A lot of the... There are universal values of my generation born in modernity or post-modernity um, and those universal values tend to be me, myself and I <laughs> and we kind of we coalesce on Instagram and Twitter around how important it is to just look after yourself Interesting. and um, it can get it really tips over into massive amounts of self-indulgence um yeah, and it, I, I do. So I do think that there are some universal values, but I don't necessarily see us coalescing as much around humanitarian values <laughs> and and peace, being peacemakers, a, a dedication to being peacemakers. Because I see even on the left, people joining their little clubs and pointing fingers at one another and saying, "Well, look at these terrible conservatives," and they're not willing to see them as as fully human. Would you say then that the work of bridging and othering is not needed but greatly needed? Yeah, yeah. And I think... You know, it's not just a um, nice thing to be doing, but it's actually a, there's a sense of urgency around how we we shape up those social discourses and those conversations... Yes. It needs to be amplified, yep. amplified, amplified. Yeah. Against a tide of polarization. Yes. Um, yep. That's sweeping over the. Yeah. <laughs> the world. And, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm into that. I really and and um, 
Okay. Yeah, I think that the us versus them narrative, wherever it's found, whether it's found on the left or the right or in secular spaces or in religious spaces, needs to be challenged and we need people to rise up as peacemakers. As saying, it's not that you don't have people who really are out to get you, you know, and don't want the best for you. Um, there are those people in the world, but man, you might expect, or, or you might be surprised by the people that you think are your enemies, that they're actually much more like you and really want the same things as you do in life. <laughs> So, so to come at it with a, I'm going to try and see the beauty in this person, even though we, we think so differently. Mm. Um, and, I'm, you know, be prepared to be surprised by the goodness of people. Well, there's another thing that comes out of Brene Brown's work um, mm. about holding on to the idea um, and being really holding on to the fact that um, people are now she uses the word generosity to be generous in our consideration of other people. Yeah. And the, yeah. And, and even when, rather than thinking that they perhaps are disappointing us because they don't care, mm. to really just practically think of them in terms of most people um, have really good will. And goodwill yeah. intent, and be generous with thinking about how they they are with you. Mm. You know, yeah. And I find that helpful because it's easy for me at at times just to um, sort of paint the picture a lot blacker than what it is when yeah. somebody else doesn't do something I think they ought to have done. Yeah, and well, and see, this is it, mm. coming back to this community that we've been discussing. In, in closing, <laughs> um, I feel no hostility towards them, although I see real issues with what they're preaching and how it can become very, very antisocial and very dark. Mm. Um, but I don't have personal hostility towards them. I think I would, mm. I would take no pleasure in their downfall. <laughs> you know, if this church goes way off the edge. Um, I would rather that, yeah, I yeah. would rather that they become a beautiful restoring place for people, yeah, and I don't think that they can do that under the theology that they're under, which is like we're saying fear based fear inducing all about division, all about us and them the end of the world, eternal torment, yeah, it's like get on to Noah's Ark that's now, not a people. beautiful vision for humanity, <laughs> it's just. It's not a very motivating one, eh? No. Uh, you know? Yeah, and, and, yeah, and neither is the vision that, you know, you just have to look out for yourself and get on the rat race of life, which is sort of one of the dominant narratives in, in secular, in the secular world. It's like the hustle culture, you know? So, mm. yeah, there's... there's mm. The thing, I'm really big on people um, discovering a real sense of purpose. Mm, yeah. That it's just based on who's my neighbour. Yeah. Having that common shared humanity without the the um, 
with it with the humility mm. that you need, you know? Yeah. Love mercy, be gentle, be tender. Don't be naive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> or, don't. You know, it's yeah. not a it's not a um it's not a fluffy rose-colored glasses way of looking no. at the world at all. No, and and oh, I like this well. Sorry. Yeah, no. Now what you going to say? I was going to say like I definitely I do spend a lot of time with what I'm researching um, in terms of international law, looking at the worst, most egregious crimes, mm. the kind of crimes that shock the conscience of humanity. Mm-hmm. So I recently wrote a paper on international criminal law, and the statute of the International Criminal Court mm. says that they're set up to address these crimes, that they use those words that shock the conscience of humanity. And wow. so I'm often reading these cases um, that come before the ICC or the other military tribunals, um, and you're reading about things that really is just the darkest things that human beings have done. Mm. Um, but you need to, you can't base your vision of humanity and of your neighbour on the worst things that we are capable of. Oh, that's good. That's a good. That's a good angle. Mm. You need to be able to see it and understand it. Mm. You need to be able to see that in different circumstances, you might even be capable of that. Mm. And that sort of, you know, to use a religious term again, confronting the sin in your own life and in your own heart. The how shadow. Might, the yeah, shadow. the shadow. How might I actually be capable of that? And then not seeing a monster, seeing a human, who in other circumstances you might have become. Um, it's hard to hate people close up. That's another yeah. Brene Brown. Even though they do the most depraved things, you know. Mm. Um, well, I think it goes to say that we are more than our behaviour. Yeah. 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 There's and certain lines, though. Like, there is lines. I mean, there are people that I, should objectively be locked away for Yep. Their entire life. I'm yep. very much against capital punishment. Yeah. I'm very against capital punishment. But I think that there are people that are so are so antisocial and so dangerous and that they will never be <clears throat> that they will always have aggressive tendencies and it's sort of that's who they are. And those people need to be taken away so that they don't cause harm. Mm. Um, they can they can do their um but it's a minority of people. Like it's not. <laughs> it's not all. It, I, I I believe that too. There, yeah. the, there has to be a place where, even though it's a banishment from society, it's because um, they're pathological. Yeah, and, and unsafe. It, it's and not. They will cause more harm. Yeah, and it's not retributive. It's no, a protective thing. No. <clears throat> they can do their learning on the other side. Yeah, that's all you can hope for them. I that's guess. all you can hope. Well, it's kind of a dark place to leave it, but so, <laughs> we need to yes, finish this I up. I know, we need to, to get moving. I, I do have um, one um, question left. Yep. Are you happy? <laughs> am I happy? Yeah. Are you enjoying your life? I am. I had lunch today with um, my human rights law professor. Wow. And she's really awesome. Um, and was just giving me advice, career advice, and That's yeah, lovely. giving yeah. me tips on how to keep my toes in academia if I want to come back mm. after going away and 
mm. working in the real world mm. if I want to retreat back to academia. Because <laughs> um, I would be interested in pursuing a PhD later in life. And then I tutored somebody, a 100-level law student. Mm, how's he doing? He's doing really, really well. He's working really hard and he's gotten really great results. He's um, a barber, eh? Yeah, so he's... Very cool. Yeah, he started... Um, yeah, I've just seen him improve so much, so I'm happy about yeah about what I'm about tutoring. I'm tutoring a few other students as well, and then I came home and had dinner with you. And then was we... that a happy meal you had? Or was it <laughs> sort of like it was okay? Eh? It was a nice meal, thank you. It was a curry. Mm. Um, of some description. I could have done a bit more with it. But... And then and now I'm going to church because we're hosting um, a conversation evening about. Tolkien and Lord of the Rings, <laughs> so, which is one of my other passions in life. So I'm happy. It's a good day. Are you happy? Well, now that you ask. <laughs> no, I am happy you asked. I'm very happy you asked. Thank you. Okay, so you're happy because I asked you if you're happy. Mm-hmm. Good. Right, well. Right. Thank you, dear. That's all right. I'm going to play that Billie Eilish song that is oh, yes. listened to. And I look forward to picking up this conversation. Mm-hmm. For those of you out there, I will be starting a, a, a podcast called From Hell-Being to Well-Being. <laughs> and I will be inviting you to join the... The well- Wellbellion. Of Revolutionary Love. <laughs> so enjoy this song. Here comes Billie Eilish. Awesome, yeah, thanks. I had a dream. I got everything I wanted. Not what you think. And if I'm being honest, it might have been a nightmare. To anyone who might care. Thought I could fly. So I stepped off the golden Nobody cried Nobody even noticed I saw them standing right there Kinda thought they might care Me weak. 
Like I'm not just somebody's daughter It could have been a nightmare But it felt like they were right there And it feels like yesterday was a year ago As long as I 